This is episode 31 of Free as in Freedom for Tuesday, September 11th, 2012. Hi, I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Free as in Freedom. Back on episode two Foxtrot, we said we would have a very special guest. And we finally do. And we have him for 3-1. So I think we can just get right to it. Right. So this will be a very interesting interview, I hope, for folks. Uh, it's about a little under an hour long. And enjoy. I think people will like it. Mm-hmm. So, Karen, with our success of interviewing uh, Deb Nicholson uh, by audio, we now have, again, our, our new type of audio interview set up. And, in fact, it is a interview that we uh, mentioned when we interviewed Deb a couple of episodes ago. This is extremely exciting, and we gave a little teaser last time. That's correct. Well, actually, remember, we're out of sequence here, so it was two times ago. Two times um, ago. <laughs> but uh, but uh, here we are with uh, Christopher Allen Weber of the GNU Media Goblin Project here to talk about his project. How are you doing, Chris? Hey, Chris. Hey, I'm doing well. So uh, so why don't you start out, because uh, some of our listeners might not know about the Media Goblin Project, uh, and I recently saw you give a talk uh, back in July uh, at uh, OSCON uh, regarding it, but uh, for our listeners who don't know about it, why don't you give the, uh, the elevator pitch of the GNU Media Goblin Project? Sure. So uh, GNU Media Goblin is a um, media uh, publishing software for the web. Um, you can think of it kind of as a free software uh, distributed kind of Flickr slash YouTube slash whatever type setup because it supports uh, images, audio, video, whatever. Um, since it's a GNU project, it's clearly free software. Um, it's actually under the AGPL. Um, it has been running for about a year and a half um, and has actually a really... Uh, pretty strong contributor base. Uh, I think we have somewhere around 50 people who have contributed to it. Um, so that's not bad for kind of a young project. Um, and yeah, so it's it's pretty exciting. And you can look at it at mediagoblin.org, which is not a Media Goblin site itself, but is the site of the software. And so, go ahead, Karen. No, I was just going to ask, and um, you know, and, and why did you why did you start the project, and what need do you think that it fills? Um. So. I actually started the project, um, well, I actually started writing up plans for the project and wrote a very small amount of code. Um, I think it was Libre Planet 2010, which is like right when I had actually finished working with the FSF on the animations I did on Patent Absurdity. Um, and I thought, well, that went really well now, and I, um, I'm looking for what the next project that I'm going to work on is. Um, and I thought, oh, I know Python. And I know, uh, I know programming and web stuff, because that's mostly what I've done. Um, so this would be a great opportunity for me to, um, and kind of autonomous was kind of in a certain, the autonomo.us was kind of at its peak then, I think, at the, at, well, at least as in terms of um, the excitement over StatusNet and stuff like that. So I thought, this is really great. Um, and I also, you know, my own personal needs were, I always kind of wanted a way to push up, you know, my many different artistic projects and uh, have them all in one place and uh, and while well, using free software, and I didn't feel like there was a really great solution at that time. 
So I started working on it, and then I got really bad RSI actually almost immediately afterwards and kind of suspended work on it for a year. And then when my when things were kind of in a better state, uh, I actually kind of kicked it off, made a more public announcement on Identica. Um, and then actually there was, I, I think I said, I'm going to be announcing a project about a month from now. And then that's when all of a sudden a bunch of people, I kind of pre-announced it and a lot of people got really excited about it on that thread. Um, and so so then uh, actually uh, uh, Will Con Green and I kind of spent the next month trying to get everything in place so that we could, we could make a real announcement about it. Uh, and so you said the license is a Faro GPL, which folks know is my favorite free software license. So I guess that means that you require copyright assigned from everyone, and your main goal is to proprietorize the code base and try to trick people <laughs> into using the Faro version, violating the Faro GPL, and then sell them a proprietary license, right? That's your plan? That, that's absolutely our plan. No, actually, um, <laughs> actually, part of the um, one of the original uh, things that I, I got really excited about um, when I was thinking about this project, um, it is under the AGPL, but I actually got excited about the idea of not having copyright assignment, partly because there was some discussion about that around the time when, well, when I made the Identica announcement, not the, the year before of kind of silence. Uh, but uh, the, uh, um, I was, uh, so I was, I felt that it would, that some of the arguments around not having which partly actually came from listening to the show, but uh, but that uh, of not having copyright assignment would actually make copyleft stronger. But on the other hand, uh, um, and it was actually uh, Matt Lee who who owes thanks to this becoming a GNU project in the sense that he really pushed pushed into doing that. But um, when we looked at doing making it a GNU project, you know, copyright assignment's an option there. And one of the things that I thought was, well, I really, I'm probably blah, probably pretty unlikely to do copyright. Um, uh, stuff myself. Oh, I guess I'm I'm kind of throwing this in a different direction. But one of the one of the things that I was pretty excited about initially was uh, um, doing partial copyright assignment. And things are in kind of a quasi weird state with that right now. But but everybody owns their own copyright, uh, and so so no, we're we're there's there's no way that we can at this point uh, proprietize and uh, start selling things unless if we get this grand conspiracy of people. So. Mm -hmm. so by partial copyright assignment, you mean sort of voluntary copyright assignment? Um, well, actually, I, I potentially end myself up in a mess by bringing this up because it's actually not <laughs> clear what the state of that is uh, with this. But that was something that I was I was hoping to do um, was actually to encourage people to do copyright assignment with FSF. But um, it's actually not clear whether or not that's an option at the moment. Um, I think it actually is an option now, but I'm possibly throwing myself into a mess um, well, I, I mean, I think really uh, the traditional position is still true, which I think is important for people to hear because there's actually a lot of confusion on it because folks always think when they hear something is GNU, they assume it's copyrighted signed to FSF. In fact, it's always been the case going back to when I started volunteering for the FSF in the mid 90s that when you became a GNU project, uh, a copyright assignment was an option for your project at that point. Uh, but it wasn't mandatory. Uh, the place where people get confused about the FSF's historical policies of mandatoriness is once you've made the decision to assign, i.e. the developers who join GNU then say, yes, and we want to assign to the FSF, 
uh, the, the, the goal was to keep universal copyright based on advice that FSEP received from its legal counsel in the 90s that you, that, uh, rather conservative in my view today, uh, uh, advice, which was, uh, that you can't enforce the GPL without universal copyright holding. Um, and that's pretty much been proven not to be true, but lawyers were feared that it might be true basically in the 90s because this was all new stuff then. So that's the, that's the historical position. What's going happen, happening in the future is, I think, probably, open to discussion, I would say. So Bradley, is that still the position of the FSF today? I actually should know this, but... Well, I mean, I, I think, I think it's, I think, as I said, it's open to discussion. Uh, I think that's where, where, what I can say right now. Um, so, and yes, you opened a can of worms for me, I think, Chris, not yourself. <laughs> um, but I think open to discussion is where I have to leave it. So, uh, but let's move on to another topic. Uh, so, um, so I, I actually I've seen I've seen your demo, Chris, of GNU Media Goblin, uh, and my my feeling. I, I mean, I I hate to to always. I mean, I know in the free software we're always saying. Oh, it's like this, but it's a replacement for this proprietary program or that proprietary program. Uh, but I, I, I'm going to go ahead and do that and say, upon looking at it, it looked a lot like Tumblr to me, as opposed to like Flickr or something like that. Is that is that, is that sort of what 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 you think it's closest to, as far as what the proprietary things are that are out there? What, what, what's your feeling about that? Um, well, you relating it to Tumblr is interesting because Tumblr is probably one of the pieces of software like this that I've actually paid the least attention to. Um, so, uh, I, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, the, I think it's actually, I mean, the, the goal of it was for it to be a lot more like, um, Flickr and YouTube and et cetera, like that, but without specifically just being just images, just video or whatever, but it doesn't kind of, it's not really a good blogging platform, which is, I think kind of Tumblr's hybrid thing is that people seem to like mixing. Um, I, I really don't know that much about Tumblr, except that people, it seems to be the animated GIF um, blogging source on the internet, which you can do animated GIFs in Media Goblin, but not blogging, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, um, I think I've seen a lot of people who use Tumblr a lot, and, and it seems to me Tumblr is, is really focused on uh, creating sort of uh, you know, fan images of, of things and, and putting together you know, caps of movies and putting them together and that sort of thing. Um, so it's, it's, there's a lot of would-be copyright infringement. And also Tumblr allows pornography, so there, there's that. There's plenty of that on Tumblr as well. Well, we do have somebody who does want to run a, uh, a free culture pornography site using Media Goblin, but they're not doing it. So, um, But anyway, the I don't know if that's... But, but but you don't know so it's the, good or the bad other, for your project basically is what you were thinking. <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not sure, but it's not happening at the moment anyway. But uh, um, but the the I I think actually the best way to think about Media Goblin is um, I actually think of it kind of a lot more like Deviant Art in some ways, where the current software is really good as kind of an artist portfolio software, and that's partly because of some of the things it's missing also. But part of the, um, both the combination of what it has and what it doesn't have at the moment is that it's really good for if you want to put together something that's you know like has images, has video, and has all those things. You can kind of pull it all together, um, but uh, um, I. But I mean, it's also like I said, it's missing some things. And actually, the things that it's most noticeably missing in, in right now is one of the big goals of the project, which is to have federation, which we don't have at the moment. Um, but is one of the the big kind of on the horizon things that that we're working towards. So. So I mean, what do you think the outlook is for that? I know that you've recently. Um, made a shift to go full time to work on this. Um, you know, how's that going? And, um, and where do you, you know, sort of, where, how do you see that sort of time wise? 
Right. So, um, so, so as you said, I have made a shift um, to try to go full time. I, um, I, I quit my job at Creative Commons. I'm actually part time through next week, and that's the end of it, um, unless I do some contracting type work. Um, but uh, um, uh, the so I am going to be. Um, so, and actually that was a good portion of the reason why um, I left to focus on this is because I wanted to push Media Goblin over that hill um, for a few things. Uh, one of them is, uh, um, is so that, and so that Federation works well um, and even exists. Um, we, we'd like to go the same route that Identica has gone and use the kind of uh, O-status meta stack um, of things, uh, and the the other reason is because I'd like to make it. Um, I mean, there's a lot of the Media Goblin has a lot of cool features, but then also has a lot of rough edges. And also, I think it's at the point right now where there and there's, there's been evidence of this a few times over the last year that when I kind of step away from the project, that things kind of slow down. Um, and I think it needs the even though it has a lot of contributors, it needs the attention of somebody who's kind of uh, um, focused on guiding the project and, and helping people who are trying to get things in, move things into the right way and stuff like that. Um, so I, I'm hoping over the next year we'll see um, Federation land. I'm, I'm actually quite, uh, quite, um, I guess you don't, I don't have a crystal ball, but I, I'm, I'm quite sure that over the next year we'll see that uh, be available. Um, and uh um, and actually, I guess related to me quitting my job, um, uh, I don't know if I'm jumping the gun by bringing this up. Uh, so, one of the ways that I'm looking at uh, possibly funding things is that I'm I'm we're, we just actually um, got back from speaking with the Free Software Foundation uh, on that front of doing a um, a crowdfunding campaign actually through the FSF. So. Well, that, I mean, that's that's excellent to hear, and, and I and I hope people do uh, donate to support uh, Media Goblin because I, I think that uh, w basically those two projects that you're talking about, first of all, StatusNet, and then second of all, your project, are really the two projects that, uh, and you mentioned earlier, Autonomous, and which I was involved with, which is more or less defunct now. I, I think it wouldn't be incorrect to say it's defunct, but the, the goal of that committee and the goal of it trying to, to raise the issue, which it was chartered by the FSF, was to... Um, was to draw attention to the fact that there's a lot of danger for people who are using network services that, that they're getting both proprietary uh, software in the form of basically JavaScript distributed to their browser in a proprietary way, like a normal proprietary software distribution, and also the way that the, the service is constructed that, that basically you don't have control of your your own stuff and your own data. And so both you and the, your project and the StatusNet project have done a lot for that. Uh, and I think Federation was a big thing that we talked about in Autonomous as being a way to make sure people could have their own servers and connect up and so forth. The, the issue I'd like to hear you talk about is, is one of adoption. Uh, I think, I, I, I actually think we're going to look back at StatusNet and say there was a, well, there was a heyday moment of StatusNet for free software. There was a point where people were not interested in Twitter, uh, or, or there was a d disagreement about whether Twitter was the right place to be for, for social media, for, uh, for free software uh, authors and users. Uh, and the Identica became really popular for that. And some people were running their own status. Methods, the Federation was being used and so forth. Uh, and then Google Plus launched and Google Plus became the default place, I guess, because uh, tech people tend to just think Google is forgivable for anything. But from my point of view, Google Plus is no different than Facebook, the thing that most tech people tend not to like. 
Uh, yeah, it's in fact worse in some ways. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm curious. Have you thought, uh, Chris, about how how are you going to do the adoption issue, and how are you going to face these things like YouTube and Flickr and uh, and and Tumblr that are already heavily used out there that you basically have to get your users from. Uh, yeah, I do have thoughts on that. I'd actually like to um, talk about, uh, you actually raised two things there that I wanted to talk about. Uh, the first one was about, um, actually, I do have some thoughts specifically on the, the Google Plus thing, which I think is also interesting because I think they actually did ride um, a, a wave of fear about um, Facebook, about privacy and stuff like that. Um, but but it, ironically, they they obviously didn't solve the privacy problem in a certain sense, right? You know, because Google's still seeing everything that 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 flows through that pipe. Um, but they they solved it with the a lot of really good marketing, actually. I'd say um, in the good as in well executed sense about uh, about the circles and that oh only these people can see this and stuff like that, um, which is a form of privacy that people I think were worried about on Facebook. Um, they were worried that their um that that basically that they that you know their boss might see something that they said um that their you know that their their grandma might see that you know that that they that they're you know supporting some lgbt thing and their grandma's going to get really frustrated and they don't want to have this this argument with you know somebody who's really conservative or something like that and they and and so that kind of personal privacy thing but it didn't really capture the 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 kind of systemic thing of having these very large centralized services kind of seeing everything as one big pipe um, that they can just parse everything through. Um, and I think privacy is one of those problems. Um, and then there's a, no a large number of other problems too. Um, some of So I think Media Goblin doesn't currently try to tackle the privacy problem at all. I mean, we don't have private videos that you can see and stuff like that. Um, and oh, actually, jumping back to that, the, the ironic part of Google Plus doing that thing is that they actually took that idea from Diaspora, which I was originally angry at Diaspora for taking kind of the steam out of StatusNet, but then I felt really defensive of Diaspora when Google Plus launched and then took their 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 aspects idea. But uh, but whatever. So the so but I think we do have a centralization aspect. Uh, there was that article not too long ago that NASA had some sort of stream of their um of some shuttle launch i think it was and then that ended up getting taken down from an automated takedown request um and i mean those things happen all the time so you still have you still have problems i think in the media space a lot of those problems end up becoming user apparent as in terms of censorship and stuff like that um, and people are pretty worried i think about censorship um even though they often don't act on it um on those worries. Like, I think people are worried about privacy the same way with Facebook. Like, you see um, people, I mean, I left Facebook a while ago, but I sometimes hover over Morgan's shoulders and uh, look at things, and people freak out all the time about privacy, but I think they just don't have any place to go. Um, and I think that was part of the problem with adoption with StatusNet and things like that, is that StatusNet also didn't handle privacy at that time. Um, and that's one of the things that people were really looking for that Google Plus quote unquote provided in this half sense. Um, but I also think that, so so being ready and having your software actually ready to meet people, um, which StatusNet was really great for meeting the Twitter side of things, I think. Um, but the, the other, um, but so we are going to face that problem as in terms of adoption because it really is 
hard to get people to move over. Um, part of that, I think, is going to be two things. In a certain sense, we have a little bit less challenge than uh, StatusNet slash Diaspora slash whatever has because we actually, there's this effect that's on, you know, if you're on Identica, you, you, you have, can have a really fun time talking to people about free software issues, but if you want to talk to uh, family members, I mean, you're pretty lucky if you have one family member who's on, um, that's on uh, Identica or some O status enabled service. Um, but as in terms of media sharing, um, I think we have a little bit of an easier time as in people often just post links to videos and images and audio and stuff like that. And it doesn't really matter where they're hosted as long as there's a good commenting system and stuff like that, you can be involved. Um, although search is harder and that's kind of a separate issue. But part of the issue is even providing that service. Um, we actually have a harder time in some ways in StatusNet, I think as in terms of cost of hosting because media hosting is so, um, can so, really so Chris, expensive. Sorry, I'm rambling. So I want to I want to uh, drill down a little bit on that because I th I think that there there is this question of of marketing. I, I think I agree with you that that where if people are linking to media from anywhere, it doesn't really matter where the media is hosted. But on, on the on the other side of it, it's there's these other things are marketed, right? And I look at something like Google Hangouts. I mean, obviously you're not trying to make Google Hangouts because you're not making online chat, but you know, Google Hangouts that Google can pay for an ad campaign for the Muppets to, to be in it. Uh, and and actually market their services. So it's really it seems to be really tough for free software service to, to actually get known by the broader population. And also, um, it, it, you, you're always at a disadvantage because the other services have such an interest in being um, basically basically silos. Because uh, Twitter used to work for Identica, and I remember this. You may remember this moment, Chris, when. Stephen Fry showed up on Identica. Now he's a Mac user. He's tech savvy. He's friendly to free software. He's done videos in support of FSF and so forth, but he's a well-known British celebrity. Comes on Identica and his last dent, I believe, was something like, I don't think, I, I, it seems that the bridge between Identica and Twitter is only one way, so I can't use it. And then he disappears from Identica because he, he needs to, he's not going to leave Twitter. We're not going to convince Stephen Fry to, to quit Twitter. Um, and so he's, he's willing to try Identica, but then he sees that and, and, and doesn't grok that it's Twitter's fault. And of course, my response to that, as soon as Twitter did that, um, I boycotted Twitter um, and stopped pushing my dents through and, and stopped using Twitter. Um, but, but, but that's just not practical. But that's not practical, yeah. right? And not everybody's going to be like, like me or you, Chris. So, so how, do, how do we reach those people? Well, to be honest, it's really hard. Um, I think, um, I mean, we have to have really good software that works really well. Um, I do think marketing is really important. Um, I think actually free software doesn't do enough marketing, um, enough self-promotion. Um, and, and that's something I actually worry about um, and something um, I don't have all the answers for, though we do try to make Media Goblins press releases and et cetera exciting um, and et cetera for kind of a non, um, a non-free software hardcore person. Uh, and I think Deb Nicholson actually does a great job on that front because she's the one who writes up our press releases and stuff. And well, I do some really uh, goofy artwork though. I'm not sure that actually helps at all. Um, but the but but you're right. The part a large portion of it is a network effect issue, and we both have to have. Um, I mean, I guess it's a multi-prong issue. You have to have the marketing to convince people that it's a project they want to have, and then when they flock over, it has to actually be good enough. And you also have to have 
sites that have the availability. Um, it's tough in some sense for network services, actually, I think harder than any other free software because um, you you can anybody can run open office on their or LibreOffice, I should say now on their desktop um, just by downloading it and running it. But with uh, network services, in order to run a network service, it requires a, a much more massive set of skills, I think. Um, so either you have to rely on somebody else running that for you, um, or you have to be able to run and take all the kind of impatient time to keep that going. And and yeah, there's this this whole this whole network effect. So I, I actually don't know all the answers to these things. Part of the thing is is just you know the belief that we've got to push ahead and work through them, um, and do our best to try to speak to kind of a a not just free software centric audience. I think we should speak to a free software centric audience and not free software-centric audience and try to make messaging that's that helps people who are not already in free software uh, understand what that is. And and we're trying to do that with the crowdfunding campaign. We're working on this video, but, you know, it's tough. Yeah, yeah it's incredibly difficult. I mean, this is what we're wrestling with at Gnome, of course, and it's the, the classic free software problem. How do you get people to care? Um, you know, so it's great that you're you're working on it and thinking about it in those ways, but it, it's not just unique to you. It's something that we we're all struggling with deeply. Well, and I think I think you've you've gotten the right approach, Chris, because uh, in the end, uh, the the early GNU folks and, and RMS talks about this in his talks didn't know if they were going to be able to get people to adopt, uh, and it was a much easier problem then because all they had to do was re I mean all <laughs> they had to do, which turned out to be really hard, was re-implement Unix uh, step by step. Uh, and now we have to actually answer these more complex, more rich services that have a social component and all that. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I think you've done the right thing from my point of view is as a, as a developer of network services, which is what your, your expertise is, you're basically saying, well, what can I bring uh, to the table? You're writing one. And, and that's... And that's more than I think most people are doing. Certainly more than I'm doing in this issue because all I do is like talk about it and complain, <laughs> right? I, I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm I'm a, I'm a pundit in some sense on the issue, not not actually doing something. And so I really am grateful that you're you're doing this. You're using a license that yeah. I helped design to get it done. You're using the license in the right way when most people write these use that license in the wrong way. Yeah, and I was actually wondering. I was hoping we could ask this when you were talking about the AGPL. Do you think that choosing the AGPL has helped with contributors? Or is hindered with contributors? Do you think people are more comfortable, you know, knowing that that's the license, or do you think that uh, people are are still a little hesitant? Huh. I actually, I'm really not sure about whether or not it's affected our contributor base having chosen the AGPL. I mean, certainly there's a few people who have responded like, "Oh, I believe copyleft's really important." Um, I think actually in some ways people have responded more strongly to it being a GNU project in some ways because I think that sends a strong message that were kind of free software focused. Um, I do actually think though that, um, Bradley, you saw my talk and in, including the troll comic that I have in the middle of it that you made fun of for looking like squids. Yeah, but, I, uh, I apologize. Um, but no, that's fine. Uh, the, uh, uh, it, it does, it was an ASCII art comic, so it's kind of low resolution, but anyway. Uh, and and the, you'll give us the, a link to that for the show notes, Chris, because uh, we're about to talk about oh, it. Oh yeah, sure. Okay, great. Sure, you so can, go ahead and talk you can about link it. to it. Yeah, great, I'll go ahead and talk okay, about great. it. Okay, great. <laughs> but but anyway the uh, um, the the uh, um, one of the things that I bring up when I do talk about Media Goblin is that uh, um, we're actually at this kind of ironic state I think about network services, which is that if you want to develop a free software 
network service, you're probably almost certainly going to use free software to do it. Um, like everyone almost that I, that I know of, and granted I hang out in specific types of developer communities, but almost everybody these days agrees, oh, well, you should use Django or Rails, or you should use these libraries and blah, blah, blah. And people actually even agree, I think, about giving back on the library front. Um, so, so you actually have this wonderful set of tools to develop web network services and no applications. You have this state right now in web services where we have a lot of developer freedom and actually like no user freedom. Um, and I think people also often don't understand what user freedom means when it comes to web services because they're like, oh, well, it doesn't really matter because you're not, you know, because only a small set of people are going to be running this on their site anyway. But I think it does affect people. Um, I mean, and I, this is one of the reasons why I think copyleft makes a lot more sense for, for applications. I actually don't feel that strongly about copyleft for, for libraries, but I do feel that um, there's this kind of model that you, the GitHub, like some one of the GitHub contributors, or uh, well, I guess one of the people who works at GitHub wrote a uh, blog post recently that was called Open Source Almost Everything. And it says, give away everything but your secret sauce. Just like give all of that away in don't give away your secret sauce. And your secret sauce here meaning your application. So it's like, give away everything that you can do to build an application. But so we have, so it's, you just stop just short of having user freedom, but yet everybody's using free software to build it. So like, we're really close. We have the tools to build these things, but very few people are stepping up to the plate to actually build that last and not small, but actually major piece to complete the puzzle. Because everybody's just like, oh, we'll just run our startup and we'll give everything away and we'll stop right before we get to that point. But do you think, do you think that the license consequence caused that to happen? Or I mean, I'm sure it's probably more complex, but I've often wondered that if, if FSF published the Affair GPL too late kind of thing, because there was this moment in 2002 where the Affair GPL uh, version two was basically a fork of GPL. It was tied to one specific company that was doing web services, but wanted to do it in a free software way, i.e. the company named Affair, which is where the name came from. Uh, and, but it wasn't like, it wasn't a central component of FSF advocacy, certainly, or anybody's advocacy. There was, there was this idea that basically, I, I used to say in those days that the, the, the GPL is the BSD license of network services. Uh, and yeah, and do you think it was a licensing consequence and everybody just got used to the idea that, oh, you never, you don't, you aren't required to make free software your application. So why would you, or do you, what, what do you think? Were, I, I think that was a factor. I think I'm sure about that, but what, what were the other factors in your view that played into it? I think if licensing and the AGPL is a factor, I think it's a factor because um, of actually almost more of messaging of what the of what the AGPL and the GPL means. Actually, right along those lines, actually, I think it was around two thousand three or four. Um, I actually um, was. Uh, I remember a friend of mine made some sort of comment. Uh, I made actually a really bad. Uh, well, okay, it wasn't really bad. I made a political cartoon that I was really excited, like, when I was, like, in my college days, and I'm, like, really excited about free software, and, like, RMS put this thing up that he's, like, oh, I want somebody to help work on a political cartoon, and I did the artwork for it, and a friend of mine was, like, oh, while you're talking to RMS, not that this would actually affect RMS's judgment at all, he's, like, you should bring up the GPL issue of, like, the loophole in the GPL, and this is the first time I ever heard of it, like, the loophole in the GPL that means that it doesn't work for network services, and the... The ironic thing at this time was like I had never thought about it, 
And then, so I, I didn't bring it up, but like I did start thinking about it at that moment, um, is that this person was saying the GPL is not fitting this network services um, aspect and that this is a loophole. Um, but part of the, but the funny thing is, is that that person then nowadays who felt really strongly about that is now using a Mac and developing proprietary web applications and stuff like that. And, um, and I think there was this point where there, there was this kind of message that was sent. And I remember actually thinking this myself, like, oh, how am I going to support myself and actually work on free software? And I had this moment, and then I, I decided that it was wrong. But I, I had this moment where I was thinking, well, maybe it's okay that I just develop proprietary web applications and not release this because it doesn't seem to be breaking anybody's rules. Like, nobody seems to be getting angry about it. And then I can still give back to free software. And I, I thought maybe this is a good solution. I mean, thinking about the problem further, you know, you, you start to realize that there are user freedom issues when it comes to to this, even if it's not being distributed to the end user in quite this direct way. It's still people are shifting to using network applications, really. But at that moment, I thought, you know, maybe that's okay. And nobody was, I, I, think, I think it did take too long for that messaging to come out. So I don't actually know if copyleft as a licensed choice it was most important for that to be closed. Like, I'm actually, if everybody wrote um, Apache licensed free software web applications, um, and maybe um, I'm committing heresy on this show for saying it, I'd, I'd actually be totally fine with it, except that I don't think actually people are doing it. Um, like, uh, the, but I think the most important thing is, is that a message wasn't sent at that time that was saying that, the proprietization, like moving everything over to this network application thing is actually not okay. That like actually we do care about those applications on the back end being free software. Um, and I think that, that, I mean, if that message had been sent at that time, then maybe we wouldn't have seen a bunch of people start to shift to being like, oh, it's okay for me to just start writing a bunch of proprietary application stuff and oh you know i don't know that kind of ha that whole thing about the proprietary web applications becoming everybody's business model happened right at the same time that everybody was shifting away from like all my friends started switching over to using macbooks so i have this kind of bitter like association of that period but like maybe that wouldn't have happened that like cultural shift um so i'm not actually sure that the license itself made that thing but i think the messaging uh, would have would have done something. One other thing I think is a factor um, in this, and and I think you're uniquely poised to comment on this because of uh, and and people hate when I do this, but because of our age difference, right? So 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 I hate when you do that. You hate when I do that, but <laughs> I think it's important because because we got to a point in the early to mid two thousands when there was so much free software that it's as a young developer uh, getting into the field. It's very rare that you run into something that you can't you can't do your work without that's proprietary that you actually have bugs in and problems with right so you talk about the Mac users well the Mac users don't actually have any bugs in in Apple's operating system they need to chase right and I started at a time in computing when I had to chase bugs all the way from, all the way up and down the stack because there was so many more bugs everywhere uh, in in the stacks of Unix stacks that were out there and so forth and so I when I when I read that GitHub post that you mentioned this this open source everything but your secret sauce kind of thing I'm like this guy has never lived in a world where somebody else's secret sauce had a huge bug that made his entire product hopeless, right? And I've lived that experience so many times 
that that's what made me a hardcore free software radical. Now I read you, Chris, I hope I'm not uh, insulting you by saying, I think you're the similar type of hardcore free software radical, but you've probably never sat in that experience of this thing is proprietary and I have to bang my head against it for weeks and weeks and weeks that, that changed your mind about that. So how did you end up like you are and all your colleagues are using Macs developing proprietary web apps? Like, like what unique experience did you have that led you to this? Hmm. Uh, I don't know what exactly it was. I mean, I went through, um, oh, I guess I should troll you because you never, I don't think you ever read my, my blog post that I sent that I partly wrote because of you, Bradley, that was the, uh, why, why free software games matter. Um, I mean, partly I started getting really involved in free software, partly because I, I, I actually used this proprietary, um, game that allowed me to extend it. Um, and you could just add anything to the world and, uh, you could run your own server and they shut that down. And that was, I think, they shut down the ability to run your own server. And, like, thinking about how, like, that kind of got me really into the world of programming. And I started to get into free software. And being really bothered by that, like, no longer being able to kind of build my own world was being coupled with reading some of that stuff, I think, partly led to that. That's a really shitty ex explanation of, like actually a lot of complex things that happened at the time. I don't really know exactly what happened that led to me thinking that free software was so important. I think reading RMS's essays helped a lot, but I think I think reading those essays and a bunch of other things in my life and maybe just me being really well set up as an individual to to gra to become obsessed with philosophical things um, might have ended up that way. But I actually think that RMS's essays in some ways are the some of the most important things we have as in terms of literature and not good enough at the same time because they only speak to hackers and academics in some ways um that's really rambly i don't know if that's helpful at all i'm not really sure about the whole aspect of uh people seeing um people not seeing the whole uh not actually running into bugs um i mean i do agree that people don't run into that but i think people are seeing other problems too i mean People run into problems with the app storeification of free. So, uh, I mean, of their operating system. People are complaining about that kind of. But I mean, I guess on the other hand, people aren't seeing those problems. There are problems happening under the hood with computing, um, with the loss of freedom that I think are pretty socially systemic, and I think we're failing to describe them to users. I think is really my concern. Like we we just. We just haven't been able to describe uh, what user freedom means um, or give that sense of technical literacy to people who have never touched the command line. Um, that's not entirely true, but I kind of feel like there's, there's a missed educational messaging opportunity. Um, that was probably a really crappy and, and rambly response, so I don't know if I helped at all. No, I completely agree. I think that we're not, you know, and I think this goes back to, you know, we had a talk from Mike Lixfair from FOSDEM where he talks a little bit about this, why aren't we engaging philosophical thinkers and why aren't we, you know, why aren't we conveying our point clearly to the world? And I, I think this is one of the biggest challenges that we have right now. This is connected to what I was talking before about the challenges that GNOME has in getting people to care. Um, I, I, I think that, that, that you're, you're exactly dead on. So I agree with you. I don't think it's coincidence that, uh, the popularity of Max coincided with, with some of these other issues, because I think that what happened was that, um, you know, open source software became cool. And a lot of people sort of, I think, lost track of some of the ideology 
in that point. Um, and, yeah. uh, you know, and, and I know this from, you know, I didn't start working at the Software Freedom Law Center until 2006 or 2005. I can't remember. But, uh, but my attitude about free and open source software was very different then. Um, and I actually, you know, prior to that point had been a Mac user and thought that free software was cool and important, but I didn't really draw that connection. You know, so we're, we definitely have a miscommunication gap. And I also think it's not a coincidence that you associate those two things because I think they are really related. Yeah, I, I agree. I think messaging is, uh, I think the lack of messaging that, that shoots at kind of a more general public is, is a, is one of the things that's most important that we're missing, but also one of the things that's hardest to get right. Um, I mean, it's hard to find people who are really, who are really, um, strongly believe in free software um, and who are willing to spend the time working on that kind of marketing. I mean, I think marketing came up earlier in this conversation as in terms of how to market, um, how to market like Media Goblin as being a good um, option as in terms of something you actually want to use. Um, and there's two types of marketing there, right? One of them's like, how do you market is in terms of it's the thing you want to use because it's so cool. Um, and I actually think GNOME 3, even though there was a lot of uh, um, there was a lot of kind of hubbub raised around GNOME 3's launch, those videos that came out that showed off kind of the features of GNOME 3, I, I don't know, they they grabbed me and made me feel really excited about the software. Um, so that's one half of things, like figuring out how to make it look great. But the other half of things is figuring out how to make people care. Like, oh, there is this problem that like you know, companies can just go around and systemically shut down all this stuff. Um, there are these problems with like the web moving in this direction. That's that's not this kind of beautiful future that was envisioned of decentralization and whatever. Um, how to get people to care about those issues? Um, it's tough. It's tough to find people who who want to spend the time on it and who know how to spend the time on it and, and to get them to do that. Um, yeah. Well, I, I think it's been a really interesting conversation. I think I think we're we're just at the beginning of trying to figure out how to how to enter the new world of free software. And I actually think, uh, because I'm a pessimist, I think we're about to enter the, the dark ages. But I think even as a pessimist, <laughs> I feel like you're you're keeping the age of enlightenment alive, <laughs> Chris. And I, I thank you for that. Is there anything else about GNU uh, Media Goblin or your work or on on network services or anything else related that that you wanted to make sure we covered that we have it? Huh. Um, I guess the major thing that, that, that I want to cover, I already brought it up, but, uh, um, but we're going to be running this crowdfunding campaign and I don't have an income. And so hopefully, uh, hopefully we, we can find out a way to, uh, to, to make it so that I can actually focus on this and bring this beautiful free, so uh, free media, uh, network sharing future alive. So, uh, um, look for that when it comes out. Yeah, and we'll definitely link to it and, I, and I'll pledge uh, I'll pledge uh, $50 right now towards that campaign. And I hope all our listeners do the same uh, because I think it's I think it's valuable and we'll and we'll mention it on the show and link to it when it launches. Great. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Uh, it was my pleasure. That was Christopher Allen Weber of the GNU Media Goblin Project. You can get involved and find out more about the GNU Media Goblin project by visiting mediagoblin.org. That's M-E-D-I-A-G-O-B-L-I-N dot O-R-G. And click the community link at the top. You can also find the developers and other contributors every day on irc.freeno.net on the Pound Media Goblin channel.
that was so fun. Well, I'm very glad that Chris is doing this work, and I'm glad that projects like that exist. As I said, it's it's one of the few projects that's using the Afero GPL in the way it was intended. Yeah. Because most of them aren't. Uh, and it's a fact of the matter, and it's un- unfortunate. Uh, it's and we a- need more success stories. We really do. And even projects like the Aspera, which, uh, which were look like they might do the right thing, didn't because they went out and found VC and they won't accept patches under Faro GPL. You mm-hmm. have to BSD your patches. Uh, Chris, on the other hand, is accepting all his patches under Faro GPL with many copyright holders uh, and trying to build a community. Yep, and trying to work as a GNU project. And I hope that folks will donate to the campaign when it starts. We'll be announcing it here once it's uh, going. Yep. Um, and uh, and we'll uh, so so uh, check back to the show notes for that uh, after the fact, uh, and we'll also mention on the show, and uh, and I'll be donating. I hope others will as well. Yep, I will be too. I wasn't trying to make you donate. I, I, you know, I wanted to say that I would, but then I didn't want to just be piling on. But okay, that's uh, fine. No, I mean, I think I think it's yeah. I think that we should all try to donate to the campaign. But thanks for joining us. Reason Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of Pod Factory and can be found at podfactory.org. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. This episode of Reason Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States license. You can follow Reason Freedom, Bradley, and Karen on Identica, and also read Bradley's and Karen's blogs. Links can be found on the Reason Freedom website, faith.us. That's f a i f.us. dot